Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas on Prison and Its Alternatives. In the early 1970s, the state of Texas had about 14,000 people in its jails. Today, the number is 140,000, and a capacity of 200,000 is planned for the millennium. The state of California has had the same explosive growth. In 1980, it devoted 2% of its budget to prisons. In 1995, expenditures on prisons accounted for 10%, surpassing the state's shrinking budget for higher education. A RAND Corporation study has estimated that by the year 2002, prison spending will consume 18% of California's resources. Other American states have been far more moderate, but the country as a whole still has four times as many of its citizens behind bars as it did in 1970. In fact, the only country in the world with a larger proportion of its population in jail is Russia, which has one million people in prison. That's twice as many as in 1989. The states of Eastern Europe and the former Soviet republics have also increased their prison numbers. So, to a lesser extent, have the milder social democratic regimes of Western Europe and Scandinavia. And so has Canada. The number of prisoners in jail in Canada has grown by about 4% annually in the 1990s. Beginning tonight, Ideas will examine this dramatic increase in imprisonment in a special series of ten programmes by David Cayley. The series will look into the complex of cultural, economic and political forces driving this growth. It will assess the dangers of allowing it to continue, discover why some societies keep so many fewer prisoners than others, and examine promising alternatives to imprisonment in use around the world. Tonight, part one of Prison and Its Alternatives by David Cayley. In 1993, Norwegian criminologist Nils Christie published a book called Crime Control as Industry. The subtitle was a question. Towards gulags, Western style? The book examined the perverse rationality underlying the recent expansion of crime control in post-industrial economies. Societies of the Western type, Christie said, face two potential sources of disorder, growing inequalities in wealth and an emerging class facing permanent unemployment. The crime control industry, he went on, is well adapted to these conditions. It creates jobs and wealth for those who build, supply, and operate prisons while controlling the underclass whom the new economy has excluded. In these circumstances, Christie saw a danger that a complacent majority within Western societies might begin to accept large concentrations of prisoners as a permanent, even beneficent feature of the social landscape. Two years later, years in which prison growth continued unabated, the book was reissued. On the cover of the second edition, Christie deleted the question mark after the subtitle. In his mind, the emergence of Gulag's Western style was no longer in question. Nils Christie belongs to a generation of criminologists whose ideas contributed to a remarkable reduction in rates of imprisonment in several European countries between 1945 and 1980. He began his work in the years after World War II 
with a study of the behavior of Norwegian prison guards working in Nazi concentration camps during the war. He discovered that those who had treated their prisoners most considerately were those who had gotten to know a little bit about them, while those who had killed or abused them had held themselves aloof. The idea that willingness to punish depends on social distance became a foundation of his thought. Later, in a book of the early 80s called Limits to Pain, he examined the institution of imprisonment and probed the common assumption that the state should respond to real injuries and breaches in the community by a planned and calculated administration of pain to offenders. By how much, he wondered, does society corrupt itself in answering the often spontaneous infliction of pain through crime by a planned infliction of pain through imprisonment? He asked whether we hide what prisons really do behind a veil of euphemisms, and whether there might not be a better, more direct way to restore the balance when a wrong has been done. With this quizzical, doubting attitude, Nils Christie has become more and more alarmed at the steady increase in prison numbers throughout the Western world. Because prisons are, by definition, total institutions whose very essence is control, Christie views them as centers from which totalitarian thinking can spread. His book, Crime Control as Industry, expressed his apprehension about the potential consequences of uncontrolled growth in prison populations. In April of 1995, he continued his effort to stem this rising tide by inviting a distinguished group of criminologists and prison administrators to Oslo to discuss why this was happening and what could be done about it. I had produced a profile of Christie for ideas around the time Crime Control as Industry was published, and we've remained in touch. He asked me to join these deliberations and to see what I could make of them. This series of programs is the result. Some of the interviews were recorded in Oslo, some have been done since. But the journey began with Nils Christie and with the concerns he set out for me in Oslo. It seems to have no end. The Russian prison figures, they are now close to one million. And the American prison figures passed the unbelievably number of 1.5 million last year. And then in addition came the new figures from how many who are out on probation and parole. And they are 3.5 million. That means 5 million of U.S. citizens are under control of the legal apparatus. It's a figure you can't, well, it's very difficult to conceive of what it means, but it means actually close to 2% of the American population are under some sort of penal law control just now. But that is on the population base of males and females. But nearly all of these are actually males. So you can look away from the females then, and then you get close to 4% of all American males. But 4%, that means from babies up to the very, very old people. So if you take only the mature population, then you come, in my calculation, around 7 or 8%. What sort of situation is this? I don't know any earlier occasion in the Western world in those societies we call democracies, at least, where we had this dramatic situation. And then it goes further, because 
87% of the males under control, they are not representative. They are mostly from the inner cities and they are to an extreme degree. More than half of them are black. And in addition comes probably one-fourth Hispanic. So this means that it is now growing up a system of control where in large areas the majority of the males are under control. So I must confess, looking at this whole situation, I get uh, both nervous, uh, depressed, and I get a very unpleasant feeling of being in Central Europe in the 1930s. The war on crime, in Nils Christie's view, is now more threatening than crime itself. In the United States, this war has been exceedingly well financed. The state of California alone has commissioned 17 new prisons in the last 15 years. In Russia, where they can't afford new prisons, the case is somewhat different. Russia's imprisonment rate has grown as fast as the American rate, but there they have had to make do with the existing space. Those not yet sentenced are in huge prisons who are overpopulated to an extent you can nearly not imagine. It is the most awful human conditions in these prisons. Rooms who would be okay for 8 to 10 people, there might be between 50 and 100 people in them. They sleep in three shifts to get a chance to lay down. And Russia is not the only. The Baltic states have overfilled prisons. Many of the former members of the USSR, these new states are also in the same trouble. So it's trouble there, it's trouble in the United States, and even in Western Europe there is a tendency to increase. And it will not become better when the, we are in a way squeezed in between the East and the Western examples. And we need no, really, if we want to preserve some of the basic elements of our social systems, we have to do something radical to get down the prison figures. I'm surprised that this is not taken up as a priority problem in the political debate around in our democracies, that people don't see the danger signals, because it is from these organizations for keeping control of the population. It's always from these that the sort of cancerous growth of control and the dangerous, uncivilized control measures uh, are met. The danger of uncivilized control measures for Christie is that people get used to them. They begin to accept that there is a large and increasing number of citizens who ought to be subject to total control. As criminals, they have no claim on us and deserve nothing better. This can then lead to what Christie calls a cancerous growth, as total control becomes a habit and begins to produce the conditions for its own expansion. In this respect, Nils Christie fears the decivilizing influence of both Russia and the United States. But he recognizes that cultural affinity is likely to give the American example a much more compelling influence on both Norway and Canada than the Russian. It is the United States that provides Christie with the most developed instance of crime control as industry. And so it is the American case that I will examine in the remainder of tonight's program. No! 
Throughout the 20th century, the United States has imprisoned a disproportionate number of its black citizens, and this disproportion has steadily increased. In 1926, when African Americans made up approximately 12% of the population, they constituted 21% of those admitted to prison. By 1993, black prison admissions had risen to 55% though their proportion in the population was nearly the same. The astonishing implications of this figure were made clear in a study released in the fall of 1995 by a Washington-based organization called The Sentencing Project. Mark Maurer is the assistant director of the project. For African-American males in age group 20 to 29, on any given day now, one in three of these young men is under some form of criminal justice supervision, either in prison or jail or on probation or parole. Uh, and the significant fact, there are many about it, but that this is sort of a snapshot picture on a single day. Uh, since there's a flow into and out of the system every day, if we were able to look at these rates over a period of a year, five years, ten years, they would be far higher even than the one in three in terms of some type of exposure to the criminal justice system uh, in the black male community, just really astronomical rates to the point where it's become almost a, a very typical experience of growing up as a black male in this society now. Mark Maurer believes that the cause of this catastrophe is, first of all, economic. The well-paid industrial jobs that once made cities like Chicago and Detroit a mecca for African Americans born in the South have all but disappeared, and unemployment in the inner cities is extremely high. But he thinks criminal justice policy has also played a large part, particularly the unhappily named War on Drugs, which has turned out to be a war on black America. Decisions were made to fight this war primarily through using police and prisons rather than prevention and treatment. We see this in the fact that two-thirds of federal funding for drug issues goes to law enforcement, just one-third to prevention and treatment. Uh, when this gets translated to the day-to-day -day practical level, we see that police have very disproportionately targeted inner-city communities for their drug law enforcement. Now, there are a whole host of reasons for this. In part, this comes because inner-city people have been asking for some solution to the drug problem. In part, it's much easier for police to patrol heavily uh, populated areas, and uh, people, drug users in inner cities, are more likely to be using the drugs out on the street corner in plain view of the police rather than uh, behind uh, four walls in a suburban community or a business office or something like that. Uh, we know that drug use and abuse cuts across class and racial lines, but the enforcement of drug policy has been much heavily uh, directed towards low-income inner-city residents. On top of that, we get a whole host of sentencing policies, mandatory minimums, particularly applied to drug offenses, that have just ratcheted up the penalties involved in these drug offenses to very severe terms. Uh, so now that's quite common to get 
5, 10, 15 year mandatory penalty for possession of drugs or uh, possession with intent to sell relatively modest quantities. It's not necessarily major drunk kingpins are getting these mandatories, but often people who are fairly low-level players in the drug trade and just ended up in the wrong place at the wrong time being hit uh, by these penalties. Do you have a measure of, uh, of drug use as opposed to uh, punishment mm-hmm. for drug use? Well, we find in the best uh, national surveys on drug abuse conducted by the National Institute on Drug Abuse shows us that African Americans constitute 13% of monthly drug users, and yet they represent 34%. Monthly, people who use drugs These are that last month? Yeah, within the past month. So essentially this distinguishes them from people who have ever used drugs or used in the last year. These are fairly frequent users, and therefore presumably they should be more likely to come to the attention of the police because of their frequent use. When we look at drug arrest statistics, we find that African Americans constitute 34% of the people who are arrested for drug possession compared to the 13% of monthly users. Now, there are some limitations in the data on drug users, and it's possible that African Americans or low-income ones are somewhat undercounted, but the magnitude of the difference between the 13% use and the 34% arrest cannot be explained uh, by any undercounting. It's just a very serious distinction, and I think a lot of it has to do with law enforcement practices. What about at conviction and sentencing? We find as we go through the system uh, that these disparities continue and are exacerbated. African Americans are 34% of the arrests for drug possession. 55% of the convictions for drug possession, fully 74% of the people sentenced to prison. Uh, If we look at African Americans and Hispanics combined, they represent almost 90% of all people sentenced to prison for a drug possession charge. The same bias has recently been reported in the administration of criminal justice in Ontario, though it's not so extreme. The Ontario Commission on Racism in the Criminal Justice System which reported in January of 1996, found that 49% of black men convicted of possession of a narcotic were sent to prison, as opposed to only 18% of whites. It also found such disparities between races to be greatest in the area of drug enforcement. But in the United States, the problem is compounded by a policy of mandatory minimum sentences. This policy ties the hands of judges and transfers a lot of their power to prosecutors because it's the charge that determines the sentence under such a policy. The result has been that whites are allowed to bargain to a lesser charge and avoid the mandatory minimum more often than blacks and Hispanics. These sentencing policies, along with the policing policies that Mark Maurer mentioned earlier, have made the war on crime something more than just a figure of speech. American inner cities have become something like actual war zones. According to the American Department of Justice, one in 21 black men is now murdered. This is double the death rate of American servicemen during the Second World War. What has happened, in Nils Christie's view, has to be understood in both economic and political terms. With so many of the black and Hispanic incarcerated, they lose their citizen rights in the same process. The majority in the cities now will have been in prison. 
certainly they lose their right to vote it is an efficient way of pacifying huge segment of the population from all political participation and then the rest of the population can sit down and say well this is arranged through democratic procedures i think we are very close a border where it will be difficult to defend this as a usual democratic measure and in this case also it is all aggravated by the phenomena in the United States situation, the great push from the industry. This is the growth industry number one. People both at the federal and state levels complain again and again of the lobbying from all those who want a prison in their particular district. So there's no end to this. Prison is useful, economic, for uh, in the short run, and if it, and this is so important, if it all is seen as a sort of war, who counts money in a war, this gets a priority, and you can see that other parts of the budget will be badly hurt. So it is a blessed situation for industries. It's a blessed situation for people who want to have... Uh, minority groups under control and it is a fatal situation for uh, democratic ideal and for basic values within our social systems. One of the casualties, according to Nils Christie, is justice, understood as a careful weighing and balancing of harms. Judicial discretion is increasingly hemmed in by strict sentencing tables and mandatory minimum sentences. Efficiency is prized over decency. Criminal justice has become a machine for the capture and punishment of criminals. It seems correct for the U.S. situation to say it's a war that goes on. You can hear it in the terminology, the war against crime. You can see it in the commanding centers. Uh, it becomes more and more the ministries who takes over. It is not a question of sort of to balance wrong thing done against uh, punishment meted out, but it is the fight against crime and the judges are seeing as a sort of tool for fighting crime instead of seeing being seen as people who should evaluate if it was wrong and how wrong it was. And you can see it in the uh, perception of those put in prison. First of all, the prison isn't seen as a place for treatment or for education, but it is seen as a place for internment. There's no particular interest in how it will work out for them, except there is a strong tendency it should they should not have it too good. And you can see then uh, lots of political pressure now to take away what was so earlier seen as an obvious thing that they should have some freedom of movement inside the system, easy access to libraries. Instead, now comes demands on special clothing who mark them out as the old-fashioned dangerous criminals. Uh, chain gangs are coming up again. So monster pictures are created just as they are in a war. So I think... Uh, the sensibilities towards the suffering within this system seems to be also reduced. The abstract, insensitive, 
mechanical quality that Nils Christie notices in contemporary American criminal justice is related, he thinks, to the growing distance between social classes. The increased mobility of both people and property has reduced social solidarity, and punishment has become easier as the majority of the citizens have ceased to feel any connection with those who are made to suffer. In the old days, when you were glued to your property, you could do a lot to escape less well-off neighbors, but there were limits. You had them in a servant relationship, and you had also some identification by many, many small reasons. You couldn't be too impossible, otherwise your life would be miserable. Today, it doesn't matter. You are here until you decide to move to another place. So the loyalty to the local community will very easily evaporate. This is a dangerous situation for social systems. Because you leave, your money leaves, you can move everything that belongs to you. And why should you invest in personal relationships in a place where you probably will move. So we create by this fantastic mobility of money and property and persons, we create situations where there's too little to play on, on uh, interchange between people. And therefore it's so, in a way, so natural to ask for uh, the official apparatus of law and order. We are in a way living in a new totalitarian society. The economic thinking is taking over everywhere. The ideals from the economic institution, they are the only one valid. So it is so difficult to survive if you are not living according to the melody of uh, how uh, the economic world is operated and if you are not an economic success. And again, this creates insecurities that calls for law and order. The loss of complex, entangled local relationships can lead, in Nils Christie's view, to a dangerous single-mindedness. He observes this state of mind, for example, in a drug policy that has swelled prison populations throughout the Western world. Conceiving the enforcement of drug laws as a war has allowed one objective to drive out all others and somehow blinded policymakers to the damage this obsession has caused. If we were able to see that we couldn't control the drugs, we are losing that. As I saw in one British newspaper, the war on drugs is over. The drugs won. <laughs> it is a completely correct. Uh, characterization of the situation. So we will have to live with it and try to influence the drug use in co much more civil ways than the present ones. So we are destroying our social fabric through not looking at what happens. And we must use these terrible, dangerous developments within prisons as a severe warning sign do we really want to live in societies where a majority of the minority are in prisons and uh, where 
concentration camps is the sort of major cultural invention in the years to come. No more, my love. No more, my love. Lord, I'll never turn back. No In the last few years, various American states have passed new laws and regulations to make their prisons harsher. They have reintroduced chain gangs, striped prison uniforms, and corporal punishments like caning and whipping. They've abolished parole and introduced so-called three strikes and you're out rules, leading to such absurdities as a recently reported case in which a third-time felon in California got life for stealing cookies. Prisons have been stripped of all amenities. Grants for higher education have been discontinued. Altogether, these changes overturn the most fundamental axiom of humane prison administration, that people are sent to prison as punishment, not for punishment. In the United States today, sheriffs, wardens, and state prison administrators from all corners of the country proudly proclaim their belief that prison should be as mean and unpleasant an experience as possible. Prisons, the current governor of Massachusetts has said, should resemble a tour through the circles of hell. This relish for harsh punishment rings strangely in the ears of Jerry Miller. Miller began his career as a psychiatric social worker and now heads the National Center on Institutions and Alternatives. Between 1969 and 1971, as commissioner of the state of Massachusetts Department of Youth Services, he closed all of the state's reform schools and moved the kids into community-based programs. Later, as commissioner in Pennsylvania, he was responsible for moving 400 juveniles out of adult prisons and into the community. In neither case was there any increase in juvenile crime. Since then, he and his organization have crafted and supervised thousands of individualized alternative sentences for both juvenile and adult offenders. Jerry Miller has just published a new book called Search and Destroy, African-American Males in the Criminal Justice System. He says that he is deeply disturbed at the way most Americans now view questions of crime and punishment. If there were anything in my mind that defined our present situation with reference to corrections and imprisonment and punishment. It's this objectification of certain individuals or groups, primarily groups, as somehow or other qualitatively different from the rest of us. That those who break the law or those who are violent or those that do horrific things are not like us. And in fact, uh, they are. It's uh, a way we're trying to use to escape from ourselves or from uh, the, the potential for evil, if you will, or the potential for violence that is part of the human condition. It's part of what we're all about. And to the degree that we run from that, to the degree that, that degree, we'll never understand ourselves or what our society is about. In another sense, it's the loss of narrative. It's the loss... Of, of stories that tie people uh, one to another. 
And uh, when you lose narrative, you retreat to categorization, into labels, into stereotypes, quick sound bites, quick picture opportunities. So it strikes me that when one looks at imprisonment rates or the racial question or violence in our society, that at heart we really don't want to understand it uh, and we, we, we run almost in fright from understanding it and we really are very prone to fall victim to, to those who will sloganeer on it and who will allow us the comfort of uh, false reassurance that indeed this is not us, this is not you, this is not me, this is some other being. This failure of sympathy, in Jerry Miller's view, has transformed many of what were once called the helping professions into institutions of punishment. And it has allowed the categorical yes-no, either-or logic of criminal justice to dominate more and more of American life. What we have done is turn to the criminal justice system to deal with a wide range of personal and social and economic problems. And that has had a deadening effect on the democracy, but it's had a even more hurtful effect on elements of our society that you would have hoped would have been insulated against it. For example, it has turned probation, which was supposed to be an advocacy-oriented thing to keep people out of prison, it has turned them into uh, cops, what Andrew Rutherford calls attack probation, uh, where recently, for example, uh, one of the chief probation officers in California wrote an article for a, a probation journal in which he said the measure of probation should not be how many people you can keep out of prison or how, what, what your recidivism rate is. It should be how many people you can put in prison because you're preventing crime by doing such. So the, the goal has been totally perverted where the role of the probation officer is to catch someone at a, in a technical violation, not in a new crime, so that you can stash them in prison. In California, for example, of the 120, 125,000 people in California prisons, between 40 and 50,000 are there on technical violations. They have not committed a new crime. They were out on probation uh, or parole, and the probation officer found some technical way to bring them back. Had they committed a new crime, they would have had to go to court and be recommitted and tried on that. But they've done things like not keeping their appointments, having a dirty urine, uh, moving without permission, marrying without permission, uh, not getting a job. And uh, so that that has been perverted. But it's not only affected probation, it's affected child protective services where now social workers join prosecutors to go out and catch uh, issues of incest and, you know, rather than try to keep families together or deal with uh, these uh, these generally delicate issues within families, uh, they come in with the, the, the meat acts of the criminal justice system, which rips families apart uh, willy-nilly. You find, uh, you know, it used, it's now a myth that uh, helping professionals, psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers are the bleeding hearts that come into court and and testify that the persons really shouldn't be held accountable because of uh, this or that. That is not true uh, anymore, well, if it ever was, but now they come in as arms of the prosecution. They come in talking about responsibility. They withdraw from the case in, in, in a clinical sense when, when, when crime is involved. And uh, they are generally a pretty brutal crew that come in from the helping professions into our courtrooms. 
I recently took over a D.C. child welfare agency, for example, for the federal courts, and uh, I was just shocked to find that the agency doesn't maintain social histories. I mean, uh, talk about losing the narrative. They maintain diagnoses, they maintain charges of neglect and abuse, but there's almost no evidence that they care to get that involved in the case, that they would understand a developmental history or what was happening to this family or this kid or this husband or this wife five years ago or 10 years ago or 12 years ago. That sense of continuity, that that strand of, of the career, if you will, or of the human uh, journey is lost. And that's that's for a reason. It's because that would threaten the whole structure that we've built uh, around ourselves to deal with those we would prefer not to deal with. What about for those imprisoned? What do you think are the consequences and for their communities? Well, it's very clear and some of the research uh, is very clear. In, in this country, for example, it has succeeded in disenfranchising a large percentage, if not the majority of young black men, or of black men generally. Most of them now can't vote because they've lost their right to vote by having been convicted and sent. In many states, you never vote again. And it has, uh, in, a, in an odd sort of twist, we have socialized, particularly inner-city young men, to the mores of the prison, so that you now have on the streets the warped philosophy of violence that holds correctional settings together, so that the kinds of behaviors that seem meaningless or senseless to the average observer, like drive-by shootings, killing someone over their sneakers or their athletic jacket. Those are not senseless at all to anyone who knows prison life. Those are precisely the things that are done day in and day out in the prison. It's, it has to do with status. It has to do with respect in front of your peers. You learn not to open your mouth and say anything unless you are willing to deliver in violence. Now, in prison, for the most part, it's confined to physical violence in terms of fights and maybe a knifing now and then. But on the streets in this country, we've thrown millions of handguns into the mix. Drive-by shootings are performance art. Very rare would you see a person alone in a car driving by and shooting people. It has to do with whoever else is riding in the car and demonstrating his ability to be unfeeling and to, and to get back at someone. It's the kind of thing that characterizes day-to-day -day prison life. And so we have now on the streets people acting like they're in a prison or reform school only without without the walls and without the limits and with all the handguns that they wouldn't have otherwise were they in prison. So that it's, in a sense, the imprisonment has resulted in a self-fulfilling prophecy on our streets. You don't have a reputation in many large cities unless you've been to prison. You certainly can't be a gang leader unless you've done time. It, it, it's this kind of upside-down world which the white majority has created and given to the blacks in this country as their salvation. As I say in my book, we've given them, you know, the criminal justice system rather than a decent uh, a system of care and, and assistance and family support. We have given them the criminal justice system. And uh, that, by definition, is a hostile, alienating system. There's nothing, there's nothing healing about it. It may be necessary, but uh, to use it as the major means of dealing with, with social and economic problems, uh, that's what totalitarian societies do. And so that's why I think it's an early warning sign uh, as to where we're headed. ¶¶
Americans, in Jerry Miller's view, increasingly view their prisoners as enemies. They place them, as he writes in his book, outside human consideration. The idea is supported by moves in both the federal Congress and various state legislatures to strip prisoners of their rights. In the fall of 1995, for example, the Senate passed the Prison Litigation Reform Act, which has since been enacted into law. It severely limits the access of prisoners to the courts and the ability of courts to order improvements in prison conditions. This act marks an explicit end to the movement to improve the civil rights of prisoners that began in the early 70s. That was when Al Bronstein was appointed to head the National Prison Project of the American Civil Liberties Union. This movement won its first great victory when Judge Frank Johnson found the prison system of Alabama to be in violation of the American Constitution. I spoke with Al Bronstein in Washington in the fall of 1995, and he recalled how the case had begun with a letter from a 78-year-old prisoner. Basically, this letter said, Dear Judge Johnson, I've been in the Alabama prisons for uh, off and on for 40 years. Uh, they never done anything for me, and oh, they just make me worse. And uh, he had been getting a lot of prisoner mail and prisoner petitions about particularly egregious complaints, and he decided that maybe it was time to really look at that. So he took that letter and filed it as a case. And so we were asked to come in, and he appointed us uh, in that case to basically to represent the court. Uh, we would be uh, amicus, a friend of the court, but with the, with the rights of a party. And uh, uh, we went into that with a theory that we would try to prove that, in fact, the totality of conditions, if you looked at a prison as a, a pie, uh, uh, you know, with particular wedges or pieces of the pie, one piece being the overcrowding, another piece being the medical care, another piece being the idleness, another piece being the violence, another piece being environmental health uh, and safety, fire safety, that each one of those individual segments might not by itself give the court authority to do something. But if we could show that the totality of those conditions was actually making people worse than when they went in, was actually a phrase that the judge later coined, dehabilitating people, not rehabilitating, but dehabilitating people, that that would be a violation of the cruel and unusual punishment clause of our Constitution. In January of 1976, Judge Johnson ruled that the conditions of the Alabama prisons did constitute such a violation and ordered the state to remedy the situation. A year later, a similar finding was made in Rhode Island. And in the years since, many other cases involving prison conditions have been heard in American courts. In January of 1995, for example, Judge Felton Henderson of the U.S. District Court of Northern California ruled against the Pelican Bay State Prison in a class action suit by prisoners there. The governor of California had called Pelican Bay a state-of-the-art prison and a model for the rest of the nation when he dedicated the facility in 1990. Prisoners there ate alone, exercised alone, and were confined alone in windowless cells for 22 and a half hours a day. Al Bronstein says that this regime was the latest expression of a recurring fantasy in British and American corrections, the perfect, no-touch security machine for managing difficult people. 
that's what Pelican Bay was, a very tightly controlled prison where the uh, warden and the staff bragged that uh, they didn't have to have any contact with prisoners, that prisoners were, you know, talked to over um, machines uh, or microphones or um, uh, electronically. They exercised by themselves. They ate in their cells. Uh, they had no programming whatsoever. And what happens, and, and what happened in Pelican Bay and what the judge found, is that pretty soon prisoners begin to react to that kind of uh, repression uh, in all kinds of ways. They begin screaming and yelling at the guards as they if they see them going by, they begin throwing things, they store up feces, and you have to imagine how isolated you must feel to be able to consider storing up your own feces or urine and then throwing it at someone. I mean, you have to keep it in your, in your house, in your cell. Uh, and that's what happened in Pelican Bay, and of course that triggers a massive response by the staff. They begin beating up on prisoners. There was evidence that Guards were storing up bags of urine and throwing it at prisoners, uh, that uh, they began to treat the prisoners uh, brutally. Some of the prisoners uh, began to, uh, as a result of the sensory deprivation, and many of the people who are acting out in prison have mental health problems to begin with, uh, began to crack under the strain of this and, and, and act out even more. Uh, the court made findings uh, based on expert testimony that the conditions there were actually creating serious mental health problems, uh, uh, the sensory deprivation was creating serious psychological problems, and that the staff were engaging in massive regular brutality. And that's what these super maximum security prisons always result in. Since Judge Henderson ruled against Pelican Bay, a United Nations human rights report has also condemned conditions there as degrading and inhuman. The prison is now under court order to remedy these conditions. But that order may never be executed because of the provisions of the new Prison Litigation Reform Act. This act, according to Al Bronstein, undermines the very basis on which prison administrations have previously agreed to improve conditions. Much of our kind of prison litigation doesn't go uh, in recent years, doesn't go to a trial. The prison officials know that they've got these problems, and so they want to sit down with us and work out what we call a consent decree, a settlement, which does not contain any confession of liability because that's important to the prison officials. They save a little face, and it does not expose them to individual suits for money damages. If they were to concede in writing that their system is unconstitutional, and prisoners could sue them for money, saying, well, you agreed that you're violating my rights. But this doesn't. It just says uh, we don't concede anything, but we recognize that there are some problems here to be fixed, and we'd like to work together to fix it. Well, this bill automatically terminates any existing consent decree, and there are consent decrees in about 20 of the states now, uh, involving both state and local facilities, automatically terminates any consent decree that does not have a finding or a concession of, of unconstitutionality. And none of them do, because there wouldn't be a consent decree. So it's effectively cutting off access to the courts for uh, prisoners. In January of 1996, Al Bronstein retired as director of the National Prison Project, although he's continuing his work with the American Civil Liberties Union. He leaves at an hour when everything he achieved in 25 years is threatened. The promise of punishment, he says, is what plays in American politics today. It's a lesson he thinks American politicians learned 
when George Bush revived his flagging 1988 presidential campaign by associating his opponent with a convict called Willie Horton. Willie Horton was a black a prisoner in Massachusetts who had been given a, a serving a very long sentence, who was given a furlough, and while on furlough, was alleged to have committed a horrible crime. Although now there's some questions to whether he even did that, but that's besides the point. What was portrayed in that uh, presidential race for day after day was a picture on the television and in the newspapers of this black man who committed this horrible crime while out on uh, on furlough. And by going after that on a regular basis, I think that made the difference in that presidential race. And, and Mr. Bush was elected president. And all of our politicians thereafter began to realize that the way to win elections, which has nothing to do with crime, is to promise to be tough on prisoners, to be tough on criminals, to be tough on uh, offenders, to be tough on ex-offenders. Uh, and, and so what is going on and has gone on now for five or six years is a a race to be meaner than the next person, to be more punitive. I mean, that's why you see now the return in this country in, in a couple of states to chain gangs, literally uh, gangs of prisoners, mostly black, working on the road, chained to each other uh, under the uh, watchful eye of an armed guard in striped uniforms. Uh, uh, this is going back to the 30s uh, when we had very mean, punitive prisons in this country. Uh, it's why... Uh, uh, Throughout the country, many state legislators uh, have uh, passed laws and governors have urged uh, the passing of these laws to abolish all kinds of recreational uh, activity in prisons, eliminating uh, uh, recreational equipment, uh, uh, eliminating TVs and radios uh, on the so-called deterrent theory. I mean, their, their claim, which is uh, made up of whole cloth, is that if you make prison, the prisons are much too soft, they're, they're too uh, uh, frilly, they're, they're like country clubs, uh, they're like fancy hotels. Uh, if we make them really mean and, and punitive, uh, then people won't commit crimes anymore. Well, we all know that in the 19th century, uh, pickpocketing was a serious problem in London, and uh, pickpockets were hung in the public squares, and thousands of people would come out to see the example, and all the pickpockets in London would come out to pick the pockets of the people watching the hanging pickpocket. I mean, we have 90 years of studies which indicate that you cannot achieve general deterrence with a harsh punishment system. The dismay that Al Bronstein feels in the face of the American political scene today is shared by Jerry Miller. His recently issued book, Search and Destroy, was ready for the press a year ago, but the publisher held it back in hopes that Miller would add a more upbeat ending. Miller was unable to oblige his publisher and soften his conclusion. There are alternatives, he says, but most Americans today prefer the reckless fantasy that punishment is the answer to their problems. I don't anticipate the book will get a, a positive uh, review. Uh, I told my wife, I, th I think it'll be trashed. I, I don't think it'll be because it, it's not accurate or because it's, the research is not sound, but I think it's not a message that wants to be heard. I think uh, this country wants to hear things like the bell curve, the genetics of crime, the need to get harsher. That's what we're in the mood to hear. Uh, and that, unfortunately, has characterized other nations that were about to go down the toilet. The example I use in the book... Uh, advisedly, but it does remind me uh, 
of some of the comments of, of the Danish sociologist Sven Ranolf when he looked into into Germany in the middle late 30s, not to look for Nazism in terms of uh, genocide or where they were headed in terms of war. He he was looking only and specifically at criminal justice policy. And he said everywhere he looked, he saw a, a disinterested need to punish on the part of people. Punish, punish, punish. And then it was a matter of finding who to punish. And he related it to the disempowerment of the middle class in the Weimar Republic and to the frustration of the shopkeepers and uh, people at that level. And uh, it made them very ripe for the th- kinds of things that subsequently happened. And I think there's something of that dynamic going on in this country now. Tonight, you've been listening to the first program of a ten-part series called Prison and Its Alternatives. The series is based on a conference on prison growth organized by Norwegian criminologist Niels Christie and held in Oslo in April of 1995. The series is prepared by David Cayley and it continues tomorrow night. Production assistant for the series is Gail Brownell, technical operations by Lon Tulk, producer Alison Moss. A transcript of tonight's program is available for $7 plus GST, or you can order the entire series of 10 for $25 plus GST. Send a cheque or money order to Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto M5W1E6. We also have a reading list for the series, and it's free. Just write to us at Ideas at the same address. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair.
leave, I'll make a change. 